Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. Is this a lie? Because I don't want to go forward unless it's a lie. I'm not going to spend the next several stages fixing things. I only want to amplify the life that I've created this far. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast, the show that gives you artistic tools you can put to work. I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers. Today, I'm talking with artist Jerry Frazier. In the conversation, you'll discover a way of working that goes back to the masters, how to think about painting atmosphere, and why it all comes down to feelings, plus a whole lot more. In the extended cut bonus available in the podcast art club, you'll get a new way to think about black and how to create protected space around you when you work plain air. You can find links to the podcast art club and the show notes at learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 89. I start the interview by asking Frasia how he got started in art. I got started in art in a way I think is quite common, which was that my grandmother was an amateur artist. She worked in a factory by day, but by night she was Josie, the painter. As early as I can remember, a little kid, I'd, I'd, this was in New England, so the cellars were these basement rooms that were pretty funky. So she had converted hers into a studio, and I was just mesmerized by the experience of going through it. And so when I would visit her, I was, always would draw and do something, and eventually I, I got a hold of some paints, and I would just look out the window from my bedroom, and this, it was in a, not a rural area, but I could look out at a cow pasture. And that's what I did. I did that for a number of years on and off. And then, and I wish I could remember the genesis of this, but she and my father, her son, one day brought me to, in October of 1964, the studio of William Schultz, because they had looked up in the yellow pages for art classes. And so that was the first time I had any interaction with real artists and professional people. And I, I was just swept away. It just, it felt so major league on one level, but yet so warm and welcoming on another. I never let go of that. It was just wonderful. Was there a moment or moments, I guess, in when looking back where you realized like, I'm going to take this seriously? Or did you sort of always take it seriously? I took it seriously enough, enough that I always painted. I was the person with the easel in my room and that kind of thing. But there would be long spells where I wouldn't paint. And so this, my primary teacher, Bill Schultz, he had large classes and he needed assistants who were, who were called monitors. One year after taking with lessons from him for many, many years, I don't know, he says, Jerry, I'd like for you to be a monitor. And this is when I was, I can remember the day pretty much, this was, I was 33. And I, I said, oh yeah, that'd be great. And then I would think about it. Oh my God, I'm going to be a monitor in Bill Schultz's class. Wow, I better really get down to doing this well and hard. And from that moment till now, really, I really did. I tried to paint. I had a, a resolution you couldn't fail, which was I, I always had a dedicated easel. When I was in grad school in political science, in my little tiny apartment, I had a, a dedicated easel with a, a still life set up and my brushes and palette out and everything. And the resolution was simply every day, 
I had to stand in front of the easel with a brush in my hand. That's the resolution. So in for a penny, in for a pound. So you're racing to catch the bus, stop five seconds, pick up the brush, put it down, keep going, and met your commitment. But more often than not, you'd be painting for 20 minutes. And so that's the way that unfolded. And I just improved dramatically, you know, just because of the regularity of it all. You use oil. What does oil give you that maybe another medium wouldn't? Well, it's hard to say because the only two media that I've worked in are pastels and oil. My guess is, knowing a little bit about acrylics, for example, is the one big advantage while I'm painting is I'm spending an awful lot of time squinting and comparing, getting the values correct, value relationships correct. That's a very important thing. And I say squint because then you can simplify everything and you can see relationships in it. If you don't squint, you focus here, you focus there, you can't really see it. This is darker than that. So given that's a big part of what I'm doing, I would be worried with acrylics that they would just dry a different value than when I put them on because it's a water-based paint. A lot of times I use more for abstract work than figurative work. I'm not 100% sure because I, they probably have developed along different lines. But the one thing nice about oil paints, if you like them, is that they're viscous, they're gooey. They're thick. You know, you just want to like smack it on the canvas sometimes, you know, it's that kind of thing. Well, then how many colors do you have on your palette? And then sort of secondary to that, how many colors might you use in an individual painting? That's a good question. It's interesting because I've heard over and over again, so-and-so as they've painted went from whatever, 10 colors down to six. All the painters who do that say it rather proudly like, I'm such a whiz at mixing colors that I now only use two colors to achieve everything. I go the other direction. Like there are certain colors I've tried to mix. I'll buy a, like a, oh, I don't know, it's a hot pink color with the old Holland. And it would take me a long time. I probably could mix it, but it's only trial and error. And I'm looking, I need more of this, I need more of that. And so I think there are so many incredible colors out there. If I had art Sherpas, I would have probably 50 colors more the better. Right now I use 17 plus white. And it's funny when you ask, well, how many are you using a specific color? So if you're teaching, you, you often you'll see students with like five colors out. They have their painting in red apple, so they don't have green out or something like that. In their mind, it's just like, it's going to be a one-to-one relationship. There's, you know, mixing colors that get colors or, and so on, or the atmospheric color that hasn't, hasn't occurred to them yet. So no, it's like a keyboard for me. I've got to have them all out and they've got to be Juicy and ready. At one point, and I'm sure everyone goes through this, you, know, because you get really uh, skimpy with the amount of paint you put out because they're expensive and they dry quickly. And I just at one time said, I'm just going to have to bite the bullet. This is just the cost of doing business. So I just squirt it out. Don't worry about it. The advantage is so much of an advantage that the cost is little in comparison. How do you organize those 17 colors on your palette? Kind of like the rainbow. It's a prismatic colors. It's basically the palette I use, prismatic colors. Like I started with ultramarine blue and then cobalt blue and then into the greens and then into the light yellows and yellows and mid-yellows and oranges and reds. And quinacridone is a color that I, it's my necessary color. And alizarin and purple. And just recently, I added black. Just because sometimes if I want to gray something down, it's easier to mix it with a little white and black than, you know, finding the right color that's going to gray it down in a particular way. I don't use it too much, but it's there. 
I want my keyboard to be plentiful and accommodating. No fooling around here. Are those tube pigments, are they generally very highly saturated or do you also have muted colors in the keyboard to start with? I think they're all pretty saturated. I don't have like what people might call pastel kind of colors. People, when they walk into the gallery, they'll say, oh, pastel colors. And they either love it or hate it because they're pastel colors. And I, if I get a chance, I always defend myself. No, they're prismatic colors. Furthermore, all light is prismatic. So there. <laughs> How do you set your palette up? I've got two, I don't know the measurements, but I would say two panels of wood that I overlap a little bit. And I bet it's, it's probably almost a yard wide. So I put these pallets on there and I've got clamps to hold that down. And then I've got, you know, I, I bought two of these garage pallets. You know what they are? Where you can put a tube. It's got like a plastic thing you put in the tube and you can put paint on that thing in the tube. Well, I've got two of them and I had to redesign a little bit to accommodate me. But anyway, I got two of those so I can get all my 17 colors out. Now, whenever I stop painting, which is the beginning of my next painting, I clean the palette. This must be the case. Your palette ought not to be a pizza with all these colors built up and crazy. Because when I start out, I've got a middle gray because of the, a patina. After you wipe it off with paint thinner and clean it, it, it's a middle gray. So I put my two panels together. I clamp each side to the box of my Soltex easel, not the newest one, the other kind. And paint thinner, a little bit of linseed oil, brushes, tube of white, palette, piece of charcoal. Okay, now, this is why I had to go through all that. When I begin, it's like I'm a pianist walking on stage for a concert performance. I take a breath. I really have to kind of like soak myself into what I'm doing. Everything is clean. Everything looks inviting. The colors that just look like, you know, Baskin Robbins or something, just this thing you almost could eat them or something. Everything, brushes are clean, palettes, everything is nice. And so it's so easy then to pick up this charcoal and begin to make, well, I start with a gesture line, the most light, oh, bad the right word, just as a, kind of something very seductive. You know, it just draws you in. And you, you, don't, you don't care about the results. You're just getting into the rhythm and moving and enjoying line and so on. We're going to walk through your process here in a minute, but could you talk to me about the method in general first? Where does the process come from? So I studied with a person by the name of William Schultz, who in turn studied with Robert Brackman. Now, Robert Brackman had a number of teachers, but one primary teacher was Robert Henry. You may be familiar with him. And um, Ivan Olinsky, who studied with uh, Sargent. And Sargent was close to Monet and blah, 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 blah. So this method comes right out of the 19th century. In fact, when I teach, usually I often I'll take photographs of the early beginnings of, you know, Sargent and Monet and so on. And I say, there's the composition stage and so on. So go right through the method. So uh, what it is, it breaks the process, process down into five stages. The first stage is in charcoal and it's in charcoal because you're going to wipe it off. Then in terms of painting, it's very simple. It's line, color, line, color. That's it. We're going to go into each of those five stages. So first stage what are you looking for in that first stage? The first stage in charcoal, which is called composition, is you look for gesture. You try to establish gesture right away. And then you look for separations of value. And then you wind up with 
something that's going to give you an insight as to where this thing may go. And it's very important to make a decision right at that moment where you say, one, is this a lie? Because I don't want to go forward unless it's a lie. I'm not going to spend the next several stages fixing things. I only want to amplify the life that I've created this far. Maybe it's just a little tiny thing, or maybe it's just suggestive or, you know, has a feeling that I could do a lot more to it. So that's, it helps solve a compositional problem because a good painting that's a lousy composition is lousy. And you can do that in like 30 seconds. And so what the first stage, the charcoal stage, which is called composition, answers, it answers the question, should I go forward in oil on canvas? My teacher always used to joke, right now, if you look at your canvas, it's valuable. <laughs> if you start putting marks on it, it might go right to zero, right? So you have to answer the question, you know, is you know, I'm sure you've had this experience that you just start painting and then before you know it, why did I start? It's all messed up and it's just, why do I do this? So anyway, the, the first stage, the composition stage solves that problem. So then you wipe it off. After the composition stage, which you do in charcoal, what comes next? Now in oil with a relatively neutral color, which is for me like a, a, a little bit of a grayish tan kind of color, very, very light. You don't want to go much darker than the canvas. You do the same thing again, but it's not repeating it because now you're more intimate with that. You know, I've, I've danced a few steps with what I'm looking at. Now I'm going to feel that a little bit more and your gesture is going to pull you in a little bit more. And then I look for separation of value lines and they're varied. This might be a little bit of a one. This is more intense. Boom. I'm right there. I say, okay, now should I go forward? Same question. If you say yes, because not only might you not want to, but people make a living doing just that, you know, beautiful, wonderful constructions. That's the name of the statement. It's called the construction. So we've had charcoal, get rid of it. Now we're in the painting. Line color, line was construction. Now we're going into color. What happens in this first color stage? And there's going to be two kinds of color. The first color stage is called the underpainting. It's literally going to be under the next color stage. And what you're trying to do is establish atmospheric color or the harmony of atmosphere, which Robert Henry would call the super color, which uh, James McNeil Whistler would call. It's a color that's kind of like breath on glass. The way I talk to students about it is I say, if you were in a room at night and someone turned on a green light bulb, Everything would be greenish, ditto with a red light bulb and so on. But when you go out to paint, actually, the situation is identical. There's a big light bulb on. It's called the sun. And depending where it is in the sky and what's around, it's creating the same kind of biased set of issues. But we're not aware of that because we're like the fish in water that doesn't know it's in water. So we have to become much more much more conscious of atmospheric color. And I would make the case, in fact, I can, you know, I, I know for a fact, if I read what Pizarro saying, saying and Cezanne and Monet, it was the most important stage. It's the most important aspect, if you had to pick one, about your painting is to establish a sense of atmosphere. And you do it by scumbling. You use the side of the budget, very, very dry. Just drag it, color one, one veil over the other. Your canvas is white if, or light, so you start with the darks. You divide, divide what you see into three values, darks, middles, light. Well, you already got the lights from the canvas itself. So you scumble in the darks, scumble in the middles, and you're starting to see this thing emerge with a feeling of atmosphere. 
Okay, so we did that first color step in the process with atmosphere. Now what's next? Now, if that's all very good for you and you want to go further, you go back to line to reconstruction. And reconstruction is very similar to construction, except now we're going a little darker. Because when we put darker separation of value lines, what that does is that it makes the color seem very weak, number one. But also propels you forward so that when you go into the final stage of painting, you have to put down stronger, richer, more varied color and work into the lines so all those lines disappear. If you're working outside, the reconstruction stage is very minimal, if at all, because there's so much atmosphere between you and the mountain or the tree that when you start describing it with line, it's pulling it out of the atmosphere. You don't want to do that. So Monet, that you won't see a lot of lines in Monet's work. So there's a few caveats, but anyway, so then we go back to reconstruction. Maybe the apple grew too big or something and you, re, you, know, you reconstruct it and you correct certain things, but generally it's just, you want to reinsert line again, reinsert this armature that you're going to now paint against. Okay, charcoal, line color line now we're into the last stage and it's color again finally the last stage is the painting stage and uh it's often called releasing the color so what that means is i squint and compare i don't see the thing before me i don't know if it's aunt mary or an apple or a mountain or anything it's just sensations and i start to see this i start with the darks so I might see something that's a little cobalt blue-ish with a little bit of, I love quinacridone, so a little bit of quinacridone. And I make a mark. Oh, that was nice. And then I go, a little bit of cobalt goes that way. Oh, what else we got over here? Well, this is a little bit of red and green. Begin everything, finish nothing, then sergeant. So you move around, but you're not covered. It's not like a wall-to-wall -wall rug. You're just almost like hanging tinsel on a tree, Christmas tree. You're starting to build with the color, put the color down move into the middles and eventually into the lights. When you move into the lights, you can add more, you can allow the paint to have texture because when you're hanging a painting on a wall, usually there's a half light that will catch that texture. And you want your paint to become light, to feel like light. It's not a picture of anything. It's an expression of feelings. So you want all those stages to kind of hang together. And it's very, it's so interesting when you finally get to hang because they hang together, but it's not tight at all, you know? They just go click. Once you walk through the five stages, is the painting always finished? As in, does a person have to keep these five stages in this order? Now, I said there's five stages. That is the method. But you may go back. Me might go back into underpainting. You may just do a tiny bit of painting. Or you might go back to line again. And you can begin to play with the stages once you know what you're doing. Because the whole point of the method is not to do the method. The whole point of the method is to become more of who you already are. And what that means is you have to express your feelings, articulate a feeling. So Monet says, oh, I just, I have to render my feelings, render my feelings. Looking at these water lilies with things going underneath. And then, oh, so if I could only render my feelings. Cezanne uses a different word. He says, what I do is I realize feelings. The two are connected, but they're not the same. Here's the difference. If I look at something and I say, oh, I, I want to paint that, that's feeling number one. I'm getting this invitation really to do something, respond to this. That's rendering my feelings. But when you actually paint and you got paint on your brush and you touch the canvas and you go, ah, 
It's a feeling you could not possibly have anticipated. It's realizing a feeling. In that precise moment, you have created who you are a tiny, tiny bit. And you go back and you do that. So realization is a sense of becoming. The painting at the most fundamental level is the process of becoming, which means also in each one of these stages, you really need to learn how to stay in the moment, in the moment. You're not going forward. You don't know where this is going. You're just responding pretty soon. The process will produce the work. This process will. And so you just put these marks down and let nature go into this other realm. And I think, God, I think I'll stop. And that's it. I, and I didn't know, go there. Oh, I like the way it is right now. Boom. That's it. That's enough. But as I get older, I lean more towards giving students permission to do practically anything. If it's a sincere feeling, if the feeling is sincere, then you have to articulate it. That's what's going to make you grow. That's how you're going to create yourself. That's, I hate to sound so philosophical here. That's why you're on planet Earth, is to find a process that produces the work, one. In other words, you don't think about the work while you're doing it. You just stay in the moment. Oh, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. It's like a menu of food. And number two, you find a way of working in which that's available to you. Boom. That's why you're on planet Earth. Now you know. How important is a repeatable process? I'd say it's hugely important. Different process, different person, different direction, different experience. And just in terms of being a professional artist, I really have to be careful not to fall in the trap of repeating things that sell. And, and actually... I mean, I tried that one year when I was out in the park. My goal, this is so stupid, but I, you know, I committed all the sins. That's why I can talk about it, is that I decided one year I want to sell 100 paintings. And so I did. I sold 103 that year, but I was committing all the sins. If I painted two lemons and it sold, I'm going to paint two more lemons. Well, as soon as I'm out of that process where I'm surrendering to nature, nature is nature's going to make me come alive. It's going to speak to me. And I don't mean literally, although some people have a literal conversation with nature, Cezanne being one. But no, it doesn't get to that point. It's just feelings. If I'm open and I'm feeling good and, I, and I'm not kicking myself because my, half my paints are dried up or my brushes aren't clean, if I can have a clear mind and I'm just saying, oh, I'm here to have the most wonderful communion with nature possible, I'm going to be brought into some realm that I haven't been into yet. I'm going to grow. This is going to be great, and I'm waiting for it, and I'm ready. If I can keep that orientation going, one is you kind of learn it. It becomes a habit, a ritual. It becomes a ritual that you redo, as you do with all rituals, I suppose. And it works. You've done it before. You have more confidence. Maybe you just, you know, the molecules in your brains are doing something that begets it in some way. Yeah, that's my question, too, because you have a ton of skill. How does someone who is still stumbling over sort of the mechanisms of how to mix this blue or green or how to create atmospheric perspective, like all of those things, how do they practice staying present amid all of that confusion? So this is what I would say. We live in a country, and I don't mean just the U.S., but probably most of the world, which could be characterized as a civilization of productivity. When you go to work at regular jobs and you have to be reviewed and evaluated for promotions or whatever, it's often according to productivity, you know, how efficient you do things and so on. This is what we're taught in school. You know, we're taught to we become producers. It's so ingrained that that's where 
the obstacle of I didn't, well, I forgot the examples you use, but I didn't mix the colors right or this kind of thing. Do you see what you're doing? <laughs> what you're doing is you're looking for results. So stop that. You've got to stop that. This is a different thing. And I always use analogies with human beings. When you, you, you have a, a love interest and you have a date, and you're so worried, you know, you're not going to be liked or something. And you start doing things or saying things that you think might help your cause. Oh, that's a kiss of death. It's so insincere. It's so inauthentic. It's, you're not confident. You've got to stop thinking about painting as a mechanism of production. All these stages that I go through, it's not an assembly line. The painting is not the point of the exercise. The same thing with a human relationship. Whatever comes of it at the end, I don't know, maybe a marriage or something, really isn't the point of those first 25 dates or something. It unfolds. And so you have to think of painting much more like a relationship with another person as opposed to an activity of production. It is an activity of expression. And so you could have the greatest heart palpitations by holding someone's hand in a certain context, you know, I'm just like being with this person and so on. And so you don't have to go to some end where, you, you know, you, you, the painting is, quote, finished and it's complicated and it has a message or any of that kind of stuff. In fact, the ones that are simple and have a certain a life involved, you know, they're the ones that are going to move other people. They're going to want to look at it all day long. So it's about a human activity. You got to think of activity. Art activities are activities in which you express your feelings, and the feelings are the feelings that are generated by your visual experience. If you're not feeling anything when you're having a visual experience, maybe you should take the piano or something, do something with the violin, you know. But for visual artists, at least this is where I'm coming from, for visual artists, the reason why I get turned on by looking at things is because I never see the thing as a thing. I see it as, oh, the, the color relationships. So this color next to this other color is just magical. Or look at the way that line kind of has this little snaky curl to it in relationship to that or the slight and darker. When I simplify this kind of an abstract pattern that I really like, I really, it draws me and I want to do something with that. I want to you know, interact with that in some way. But it's not about results. So Robert Henry said in his book, The Art Spirit, he said, this may sound strange to most people, but the point behind every work of art painting is not to produce a painting or produce a picture. It is to obtain a certain feeling, another state of being. That's the point. When you're trying to decide what to paint, are you searching for that feeling of enchantment to resonate between what you're looking at and then the decision, I'm going to put this on a canvas? Yes and no. Yes, in the sense that it's, I just, I walk around, you know, in my life, I do go different places. Sometimes I walk around looking for new things to paint. And when I see it, I'll know it. It'll just hit me. Not long ago, my wife and I walked down to this one little hamlet in Bellagio on Lake Como. And it, we hadn't walked down there in a long time. And as I'm walking, I said, oh, there's a painting. And I, it's really interesting because in that one walk, I said, I found three more painting places, you know. So in part, it's a little bit of enchantment, but it's not really enchantment yet. Enchantment has to do with expression. So I'm responding to it. I'm feeling something, but I won't transition into this realm of enchantment until I can realize 
new feelings that will make me more of who, to, who I already am from where I was, you know. You know, like if I'm thinking this, you know, we walked, and there was like a beachy area with some boats. And I thought, oh, that's kind of, I could do that. And the way back, we walked up this one cobblestone thing, and the light was hitting here, and there's this kind of a, a certain kind of villa over there and so on. But someone else might walk right by that and fall in love with the way the sun is hitting the hedge over here. See, so that's really you more than I. And so so then you articulate that in your work. And that's an expression of your feelings and who you are. And then you want to go on to the next one, because when you use that quinacridone and white and you made this slash where you said the rose goes from bright red to darker red, you went, Ugh! You want more of that. So you're gonna that's gonna happen again somewhere, right? So you're becoming more. That that's what it's all about. You paint in plain air. When you find a scene you want to paint, how do you make sure you're ready to paint it? This is what I do. I'm walking around and I see some, oh, I want to paint that. Okay. So I look at my watch. I say it's now 3 p.m. and I'm facing wherever, south, north, whatever. So I've got to come back on this not very humid day at 2 p.m. and put my easel up in such a way that there's no light on the canvas. So I might have to actually have to look over my shoulder depending on you know what I'm looking at. So I give myself an hour to get at least an hour to get to the point where I can nail that feeling down. You see? In other words, I can't just jump into it. I have to set it up and get all the relationships proper, have a sense of atmosphere and so on. And I might even have to, if it's the sun, if it's late in the day, I got to paint very fast. Or sometimes I'll cheat and jump ahead because I know I don't have time to get that light. So I have to put that light in now. And hopefully when I fill in the missing parts, it'll still work. There's an order in general. There's a correct order to move through a painting. That's why the method I use is gives you control in that process. And it helps you to get to the point where, yes, that's what I wanted to say. Because you don't do it right away. You got to get all your ducks in a line, and then I can get there. So there's a lot of work before. Like if I teach a class, I do a demo, you know, I do a demo just for two hours or something. And the last 25, 30 minutes, or something like that, is painting. And so I'll have to tell people, I said, after an hour and a half, it's like, okay, now I'm going to paint. And the reason, another reason why I say that is what people do not do, they don't put enough paint on the painting. It's not a painting. It's a tickling or it's a playing it safing or something. You know, it's not a painting. Painting is when you put paint on a brush and you make a mark and it's, ah, nice. So you want to make sure that all your little things are in order because if you start putting paint on, you know, you don't have to go crazy, but, you know, you have to make a substantial mark and you start building with the colors. It gets slippery. So you've organized the whole process to where the slipperiness is not going to screw you up. You know, it's not going to, oh, no, I'm sliding all over the place now because you've done what you should be doing for then find the lights at last. And then among the lights, the lightest lights where the paint is thickest is last. And the other reason for that, paintings are hung in a half light, rarely in a direct light, unless you have some internal inside kind of light, which is soft and all that. So light is always raking across the painting. So you don't want to have texture in a dark. You want to have texture just in the light. So the very lightest light you put that in there and the light comes on, catches just a little bit, throws it back. I don't know, it feels like light. Thinking about the color through your five stages, how does the saturation levels in the paint that you're putting on your canvas change through the different stages? It goes from very gray to a little bit saturated in some areas. 
in general, if you were to do this, say you're just learning this particular method, and so you're going through the stages, okay, well, you're going to have to, I hate to break the news, but at least 500 paintings, maybe 1,000 paintings before you really get on top of things. But once you do, just follow your the little urges within you. Oh, I just want to do that. Except, got to be an exception here because there's a critique of what prevents you from getting into these moments as well. As if you're adopting the approach to painting that I have adopted, you never make up colors. You never make up colors because otherwise you'll never learn to see color. And you'll never learn to feel the feelings you get when nature's speaking to you in a certain way. Little twinkles. Working from photographs will stunt your growth because colors in the photographs don't twinkle. There is no atmosphere. Treat yourself to a real painting experience. That's why I say uh, sometimes I'm outside. I thank my lucky stars that it all fell in place the right way because here I am doing this thing that it's very hard to give to someone else or explain to someone else as much as you might want to. It's just this incredible high. Because that, when I'm not out there experiencing that, I say, oh, those people who just paint in their studios and, you know, at night and close the door, how fortunate they are to be able to do that. They're not, they don't have to get in the car. There's nobody bugging them when they're, there's no bugs to bug them, you know, the whole thing. But on the other hand, it's like, oh, it's standing out there looking at these colors and being able to do something with that. It's like, you can't, there's nothing better, you know. For you, for that, underpainting that atmospheric color scumbling, does that mean that if you look out and it feels like a peachy light, like where then would that peachy atmospheric color go and how would it change as you laid it down in that stage? One thing, just your question also explains something, which is you can't paint for too long. Say sunny day, hour and a half, hour and a half, two hours max. Got to stop. I, I sometimes I, I pull my hair out as I see students to painting four hours straight, you know, and it's like what was dark is now light. The sun is setting things different. What are you doing? Anyway, so let's say it's a peachy light. Well, it's just like if you had a peachy light in a dark room at midnight, you turn on the light bulb and everything now is catching that peachy light. It isn't as though you would go around, you mix some peachy light color and you go around and you start putting it everywhere because it depends on the fabric of your clothes. It depends on what's near it and so on. But there will be a peachy light mood. There'll be kind of a peachy light feeling when you do the darks in the middles. So what you do is you squint and compare and you try to get a sense, like Pizarro says, paint the whole thing at once. So you try to get a sense of that general color. Then it's just up to seeing the atmosphere, which is very hard to do. It takes years to, to actually see the subtleties of it. And often what that means is, is that let's say you have a red sweater on and sunlight is hitting one side of your sweater. So that's bright red. The backside's kind of maroon. And then as it turns, it goes from that bright color into the darker color. That turn is a half tone. That's where the fabric of the color is going to be closest to what it really is. Although you won't ever know what it really is unless you went to outer space with no atmosphere and looked at it. So you don't want to paint just obvious things. You don't want to put maroon on one side, red on the other, some mixture in the beginning. That's fine. That's a decent picture, but there's no atmosphere. And Rembrandt said, without atmosphere, painting is nothing. Okay, that's Rembrandt. But so then what do you do? Well, you look for what is happening in the maroon. Do you see any little blues? 
When there's warms, there's cools. When there's when it's predominantly cool, there's little warms. Purplish, all the ishes, greenish, purplish. Look for those little ishes in there too. You'll start to see them. Those are atmospheric colors, apart from the sweater. So Monet says, I don't paint the sweater. I paint what's between me and the sweater. So always keep in mind that it's like you're looking through wax paper when you paint something. That would be a good way of, or or you're underwater looking at something. So there's a medium through which you are looking at everything. The more conscious you are of that fact, the more you're going to see it. The easiest way of seeing it is like where I live on the lake here. And so I look at trees nearby and, you know, let me see. Yeah, the greens are pretty bright and the the light strikes are very yellow green. The exact same trees you know, half a mile or a mile away are different colors. The ones farther away are more blue and purpley. What's happening? Well, that's the color of the atmosphere. And that atmosphere is on that tree, those leaves with rich colors too. It doesn't have to be a hazy day for there to be atmosphere. You just have to see it. So if you look at Twachman, John Twachman, he has a lot of sunny papers with terrific atmospheric colors, or Monet, of course. But just look for it. Well, look at some of these great painters. Look at who emphasize, and Monet emphasized atmosphere probably more than anyone. Just look for the, and his bright yellow things. Look where the sun is hitting and look for these little touches of blue, little touches of purple, little touches of these cool colors in a warm light. That's the atmosphere. Could you talk about how you handle color through lights, mids, and darks? Let's keep using the example of the sweater. Let's assume you start on a white canvas. So the darks and metals are going to be some color, and the white canvas is going to be the light. What I'm referring to with the light is this. I know after having painted a while, or you will know after having done this a while, that with this point of view and this method is I want the paint to feel like light. I don't want it to be a picture of something. Who cares if it's, I don't care about Teddy Roosevelt. I don't care about the church on the hill or the beautiful ballerina or whatever. I don't care about any of those things. I don't want my painting to be a reference to anything. I want it to feel like light so the person looking at my painting can have an experience similar to what has turned me on. So therefore, I want, and where the light is most active, the paint to be vibrant and vibrating. So I have to start with a no painting underneath or maybe a very light scumbling. Because then I can put the paint down over the top of that so that it will vibrate with the underpainting or with the white, what has been left open, the white. I shouldn't say the underpainting rare. So just, just keep it just with the white, white canvas. I put very light strokes of yellow, very light strokes of gray, very light strokes of pink or whatever. And it's going to be predominantly one of those things. And you step back and it starts to be very active and twinkling. And those areas are left open. That's why you leave it open. So in the sweater, if you have the sun hitting it where it's a bright red, red is not a light. Red is a middle, the brightest red. If you take a black and white photograph, it'll be middle value. But you want it to be vibrant and active in the painting. So I probably might not leave it open white because I don't want it to look like the measles by putting these red colors in white. I might scumble just a little bit. I have to anticipate what I should do to get that feeling of, of red. So I'd make a judgment. And then as far as the darker sides, that's much easier, darks and middles, because then you'll just, you'll see all these dull colors relative to the subject that you think, red sweater, oh, that's not a dull color. But in the shadows, it's always kind of dullish kinds of colors. So that finally, when you get into the bright, in that relationship, that bright red is going to feel like a bright red. 
if you make the dark side too reddish, you're never going to get the feeling of the bright red. You know, it's a relationship. There's no such thing as a color. It's a relationship always. It's that kind of thing. So there's a cherry tomato looks like one thing on the wood table and it looks like nothing on a red rug. So the color of anything is always, a. it depends on what it's with or next to. Well, then if someone came to you and said, I want to get really good at painting, what advice do you give them? Monet said at the end of his life, and no one was more self-critical than Monet. As you probably know, letters to his wife when he would travel, he'd say, uh, well, the one thing I know for sure, I'm just a terrible artist. It goes on and on and on. He he burnt up to 300 paintings at a time. It was just, he'd go crazy. He was so self-critical. At the end of his life, someone asked him, he said, what would you tell an artist, a young painter coming to see you? What advice would you give that person? Thought for a second, said, Painting is very difficult. (laughs) But this is what I would say. I would say, Robert Henry says it, cherish your feelings. It's all about feelings. I would say this over and over and over again, because we live in a civilization of productivity, which is, it's not about productivity. Think about human relationship. I remember one time in a class, (laughs) so funny, it it just struck me so funny, it was the the way this, mostly women in the class, just the way she said it, she, this woman's standing further back. And I'm going through my, my little rants. And she pipes up in the back. She says, what's wrong with efficiency? <laughs> Nothing if you want to crank out paintings. It's probably a good thing. But what's wrong with efficiency in a human relationship? Well, first of all, it makes no sense. It's a category mistake. So you've got to start thinking about painting not as you are skillful. You are good or bad, or you can't do it. You know how I met my wife at an art exhibition, and she says, she's looking at my work, and she said, oh, I wish I could do that. So I said, well, if you're free Friday night, I can give you a free art class. Because in this part, that part was a little bit of a line. But the true thing was, because if you say, I wish I could do that, it means there's something within you that you're responding to so we can develop that. Like, how do you take that feeling and make marks on a canvas such that the feelings are amplified or grow in some way? Well, you don't have to be good at all these stupid things. You don't have to be good at making a coffee cup look like a coffee cup. Oh, I can't draw. I'm terrible. Can't draw a straight line. What are these crazy things? No, because we can look at so many great artists who didn't have that aptitude either. But look at Van Gogh's drawings, not the painting so much, but even his paintings. The drawings, the fingers on people, the the line is just so dripping with feeling, you know. It's not a great, accurate drawing at all. But it, we can feel that. That's a, that guy's an artist. You can learn more about Jerry Frazier at his website, frazier.com, and on Instagram. And we'll link to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for being with us today, Jerry. Thank you. Thank you for joining me this week on the podcast. If you want more great conversation with Frasia, join us in the podcast art club for the extended cut bonus. You'll get a new way to think about black and how to create protected space around you when you work in plain air. Plus, you'll find over 30 additional bonus conversations with guests. To find a link to the podcast art club and show notes, head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 89. Thank you to everyone over in the podcast art club. You make this show possible. Extra shiny thank yous to High Gloss supporters, Andrew Atterbury, Debbie and Brian Miller, Rihanna DeRold, Janet Wheeler, Nancy Bryant, Pam Lyle, and Slow River Studio. 
Happy painting!